You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so uh, just like we've been doing the past few weeks, we're going to walk through this uh, quickly, gather some details that we need, and then we'll talk about why this text uh, is important for us. Now, um, in only two of the four Gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in only two of them do you even have any, any reference to the narrative of the birth of Jesus, right? So the birth of Jesus shows up in two of them. Mark and John leave it out. But when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, we see this recorded for us across all four Gospels. And so what that means for us is that this event in the life of Jesus is massively significant. And so, as Jesus goes to John the Baptist, uh, let's read about what takes place here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, that is John the Baptist, who was introduced last week. John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus goes to John the Baptist, and he goes in order to be baptized. Now, if you remember last week, right, John said that this Messiah that was coming was a man whose feet he was unworthy of washing, right? And so when Jesus comes to John, John expects to be baptized. He's like, all right. My baptism was for repentance. Jesus has come. This is him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And yet John is approached by Jesus and Jesus says, I'll be baptized by you. So this is totally counterintuitive for John. John is shocked in this moment, right? John knows that just like everyone else, he needs Jesus' baptism, not the other way around. And so the question is, what is it that Jesus is is doing in this moment? What is he telling us? And what is it that's so important about it that it would be recorded across all four Gospels? Well, there's two things. First, he's identifying with us. You see, Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything, but his people do. And in a traditional Mediterranean culture where society stressed honor and shame, Jesus, in this moment, relinquishes his rightful honor to embrace our shame. And the second thing that he's doing is he's initiating his public ministry. This is the moment where in his baptism, right, he's saying, now begins my, my public ministry in front of the world. Keep reading, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so again, at the initiation of Jesus' public ministry, we see the appearance of both the Father in the voice and the Spirit in the likeness of a dove descending upon Jesus, affirming him and affirming what will be the ministry that he is come to bear out this ministry of proclaiming the kingdom, right? Which we see in that final verse 17. Repent. 
the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what we, what we see here is that God, this one God in three persons, is acting together in the life of Jesus in unity, right? So Jesus is not going rogue, right? God, isn't, God the Father isn't angry with us, so Jesus comes and makes it all better, right? It's that God the Father expresses His love for us through the work of the Son, empowered by the Spirit. And in this moment, we see them all together, again, acting in unity. Meaning the love that we experience in Jesus is also the love of the Father. Meaning the forgiveness that we experience in Jesus is also the forgiveness of the Father worked out by the power of the Spirit. Keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So what happens? Immediately after this, right, the same Spirit that descends upon Jesus, affirming his now imminent public ministry, leads him out to the desert to be tempted. The same Spirit. And Jesus goes out there and he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. And we don't have a lot of time to dig into this, but this is a significant number for the Jews and for Israel. It's significant because it's a direct link to the history of Israel. You see, after Israel was set free from slavery in the land of Egypt, they wandered the desert for 40 years. Right? This was Moses who led them during that time. And we'll see why that's important in just a moment. Keep reading verse 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is out in the desert. He's fasted for 40 days, for 40 nights. He's hungry. And into that, the tempter comes and he says, hey, you must be pretty hungry. If you're the son of God, you can turn these rocks into loaves of bread. And so Jesus has an imminent physical need. And the devil, Satan, the adversary, the tempter, as he's described here, comes and says, meet your, meet your physical need. You're the son of God. You are able to do this. And Jesus rebuts him. He, he answers him with Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And essentially what he says is that physical sustenance is nothing if you don't have the sustenance of the Spirit from God, right? He says, he says yeah, sure, I could meet my physical need, but then I will experience a more severe lack in that I will have stepped away from God Himself. I need His presence. I need His Word as my first sustaining grace. So that's the first time he's tempted. The devil, being persistent as he is, comes again in verse 5, right? The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. 
And so what happens? Second temptation, right? Jesus is tempted to prove that He's God by proving that God cares for Him. Prove you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, then He'll protect you, right? And here is how crafty, right, Satan is. First, he just tempts him. He says, hey, you're hungry? Turn the stone into a loaf of bread if you're the Son of God. And Jesus responds with Scripture. So, so Satan says, all right, we can do the Scripture thing. This is what it says in the Bible, right? It says that God will command His angels concerning you, that, that He'll protect you. So throw yourself off. You'll be protected. And what does Jesus do? Again, right? Re- re- rebuts the tempter with Scripture from Deuteronomy 6. It says you shouldn't test God. So there's a big difference, right, for Jesus between trusting God and testing Him. And what the devil is suggesting crosses that line, right? You can trust God without having to test Him. There's a difference. God's angels will protect God's people, but not when they try to manufacture a situation in which they must, right? Keep reading, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So finally... Right? Jesus is tempted with all of the exaltation that God has already promised him. Right? What does he say? Look at the kingdoms and all of their glory, all of it's yours, if you will but fall down and worship me. Right? Jesus is tempted with all of the exaltation that God has promised him, but without the suffering that stands between him and it. Right? Essentially, what Satan is saying is you can have everything that God promised you without having to walk the road of suffering. Just bow. And again, Jesus, one more time with Scripture, again from Deuteronomy 6, says there's only one God. There's only one God to be worshipped. And because He is worthy of being worshipped, He is also worthy of being served. Right? And then He commands Satan to be gone, and Satan leaves. And in doing so, he shows us that he's really the one with the authority in this exchange, right? So what do we we see? Here we see Jesus baptized, initiated into his public ministry, experienced temptation. And here's the link to Israel. Right, I said earlier that 40 days, 40 nights, that's a significant number. Linking to Israel's history, 40 years wandering in the desert. Those 40 years of Israel wandering in the desert were some of Israel's most unfaithful times. That was the time when Moses went up, right, to receive from the Lord the Ten Commandments, and while he's gone, they've already fashioned a calf to worship out of gold, right? This is the God who provides manna from heaven, water from the rock, and they still complain and moan, right? This is the God who walks with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? For 40 years, Israel's unfaithfulness just cataloged time after time after time. And yet in Jesus' 40, 
He is utterly faithful. He's faithful. He resists those temptations. And so unlike Israel who is unfaithful to God in the desert, Jesus, the true Israel, is faithful to God in the desert. What is it that Matthew's trying to accomplish here, right? In this text, Matthew would first have us behold this Jesus, right? He, said, he uses that word several times in the text. Behold, behold, behold. He would have us behold this Messiah, right? His desire is that Jesus would be revealed to us as He is. That the God who wrapped Himself in human flesh is now displayed before us on the pages of Scripture as a God who empathizes intensely with His people. Right? He, he doesn't just take on flesh. But he goes and he receives the baptism of repentance, though he has nothing to repent for. He experiences temptation like we do. And in the midst of all of it, we see him in his utter faithfulness. Where Israel and where you and where I fail, Jesus is utterly faithful. And we see this contrasted, right, with the testing of of the adversary, of Satan, of the tempter, right? And it's in showing us this Jesus that Matthew is inviting us to trust God rather than to test Him. Right? That's essentially what this, this text is inviting us into. Look, here is a God who has come among you, who is one of you, who empathizes with you, who has struggled like you struggle and yet has been found faithful. And so you can trust Him. But our problem, and probably many of our complaints from 2016, is that much of what our lives are characterized by is an unwillingness to trust, and rather to test, right? So instead of trusting and not testing, we find ourselves testing and not trusting. Essentially, we ask the same question that Satan asks over and over of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, then blank. Right? If you're the Son of God, then do or say or provide or remove blank. And then when God fails our test or fails to oblige it, we say, well, then you must not be God. Then you must not be the Son of God. Haven't we all done this at some point, right? God, if you would just blank, then I'll really know. Then I'll really trust and my contention this morning is that if we see the real Jesus, if we behold the Jesus that Matthew wants us to behold this morning, then we have more than enough reason to trust Him, so much so that we don't feel the need to test Him. Here's why. In this text alone, right? In this text alone, we see Jesus being faithful where we aren't. Jesus understands our temptation, understands our difficulty, and yet doesn't succumb to it. He does what I can't do. He does what you can't do. He does what we can't do. And here's the thing. I love that this, that this comes right on the heels of, of the narrative of His birth. You see, I think all too often, 
right? We, we talk about Jesus' deity to such a degree and so clearly because it matters, right? It matters that Jesus is God. But at the same time, I think we do so sometimes in such a way that it unduly covers up the fact that Jesus is utterly human, that He is 100% body and flesh like you and me. He really does know. He really does understand. He really does empathize with our struggles and with what it means to be tempted. The Bible in another verse tells us that He was tempted in every way. That doesn't mean He's walked in every single situation that you've been in, but it means that He's been tempted in every way like you've been tempted. Although the situation may have been different. So He understands And look, this isn't just thrown in here so that it's like, okay, and then Jesus was tempted and then life was perfect for him the rest of his life. Far from it. This isn't even the last time that he's tempted. All right, let's read ahead just a little bit. Let's read ahead uh, in, in Matthew 27. In what arguably may have been his most, his moment filled with the most temptation. Matthew 27, I'm just going to read verses 35 through 40. And this is Jesus at his crucifixion. And it says this, And when they had crucified him, that is Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, get this, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Right? This is the same challenge. It's the same challenge that Satan presents to Jesus, right? If you're the Son of God, come down. Simple, right? And again, this may have been Jesus' greatest temptation as He hung on the cross in the greatest moment of human agony in the history of mankind. But instead of getting down, He throws Himself into darkness. Verse 45 says this, and I'm just reading a few select verses, but verse 45 says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the verse 50 it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You see the lengths to which Jesus goes, not only to save us, but to show us that He loves us, right? First John tells us that, that this event right here is the way that we, we know what love is, that this is the definition of love happening before our eyes right now, right? Satan offers him a way out. You hungry? Feed yourself. You know you can. 
Are you sure you trust God? Test Him and see. You want everything that God promises you, but you want to bypass this moment? Just bow before me. That's it. The passers-by at Golgotha say to Jesus, if, if you're God, just come down. And in the face of it all, Jesus was unflinchingly faithful. And He was so for us because we're utterly unfaithful. And you know what happens when you see this Jesus? This is what happens. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And then skip down to verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. A Roman centurion, right? So no historical affiliation to Israel, wouldn't know anything about 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, this, that, the other, no, none of this, none of that. Sees this. Surely, truly, this was the Son of God. Right? Jesus did this so that you and I might, with the centurion, say, truly, this is the Son of God, right? And what I love about this is that in this moment, this, this greatest moment of temptation for Jesus, He doesn't say, Father, if you're, if, if you're a good God, you won't make me do this. On the contrary, He says, Father, because you're a good God, I'll walk the road of suffering trusting you rather than testing you. Right? In the moment where it would seem most antithetical to trusting, right? Like, in the moment where Jesus Himself cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the moment where you would be most disinclined to trust Jesus, or to trust God, Jesus trusts God. In the moment where everybody around is going, see, we told you, Jesus, we told you. Jesus trusts God. And of course, we know what happens next. He's risen in victory three days later over Satan, over sin, and over death, right? And he is exalted to the station that he would, had always been purposed to be exalted to as the Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign over all creation, seated at the right hand of the Father, dispensing grace and salvation to any who would come. But here's what's really wild. When we trust Jesus, and when we trust His perfect record of faithfulness, as opposed to our record of unfaithfulness, the Bible says that we get adopted into God's family. That we become sons and daughters of God, right? I'm going to read real briefly from Galatians chapter 3. So you know that I'm not making it up, right? Galatians chapter 3 verse 25 says this. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That by faith, in the record of Jesus, His perfect faithfulness on our behalf, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, 
and His victorious resurrection that now by faith we are sons and daughters of the living God. And you know what that means? It means that what God said about His Son in Matthew chapter 4, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, is the same thing that He now says about you and me. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. But that's not all. Can you believe it? That's not all. Because we're sons and daughters of God in whom He is well pleased, the Spirit of God now comes to rest on us. We have the same Spirit that Jesus did. Read from Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14, this is what it says. In Him, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, get this, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So here's the truth about 2017. Temptation will come. Whether Satan tempts us or whether the passers-by mock us in our faithfulness to Jesus because our trust in Him seems foolish in that moment. Temptation will come. And look, I don't mean temptation to like eat that slice of cake that you said you weren't going to, right? I mean the temptation to distrust God. The temptation to believe that there's something better than Him. The temptation to believe that you can love God in His glory and bypass the suffering that comes with it. But the glorious grace of the gospel for us this morning is twofold. First, we can trust Jesus to sustain us in those moments of temptation. We have the Spirit and we have the Word. That's all that Jesus has in the desert. He's in the desert. He's alone. He doesn't even have food. He has nothing. And yet He has the Spirit and He has the Word. And He is delivered. As He prays to the Spirit and as He rebukes the temptation with the Word of truth, He is sustained. We have those same tools, brothers and sisters, at our disposal this year. They are precious gifts from God Himself. The Spirit as a seal of our inheritance. The Word as a means by which we can know that the Spirit is ours. A means by which we can know that God is faithful to us always and that what He decrees comes to pass. But that's just, that's just one thing. The second thing is this. We can trust Him. And because we can trust Him, we can trust Him to forgive us. In this new year, we should fight temptation by the Spirit and the Word. We must. It's only in following Jesus that we experience the life that is truly life. And to follow Jesus is to experience temptation and is to experience hardship and difficulty and suffering. And the reality is that, look, 2017 will not be 
only victorious for you. But when you fail, when we do succumb to the temptations, we can trust God to be faithful to forgiving and faithful to cleansing us of all unrighteousness because His mercies are new every morning. Not just this morning. And so in closing, my resolution this year is one that will be a resolution, Lord willing, for the rest of my life. I want to behold this Jesus and I want to trust Him more. I want to live by the Spirit and I want to soak in the Word so that when these moments appear, I rely on them instead of being tempted to test. And my prayer is that in those moments, not just for me, but for all of us, that the Spirit would graciously recall for us God's Word in those moments. And I'm struck. I'm struck by the, the words of the song that we just sung together. Right? No power of hell. No scheme of man. No Satan. No passerby at Golgotha can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Let's pray.